Hi, I'm Lucy. And I'm Pinky. And you're listening to Thank Folk for Feminism. Welcome back. We have missed you so much. Uh, But as many of you possibly know, during September, Lucy had some pretty important work to do. How's that all panned out for you, Luce? Yeah, well, you can probably hear in the background the little snuffling noises of uh, of my third son who landed Earthside at the start of September. And uh, the joy of uh, making a feminist podcast is that you can be nursing your child while creating like rad content for the world. But no, things are great. Thank you. He's, he's settled in beautifully. He's a very calm dude. And... Uh, is a very noisy feeder. <laughs> <laughs> well, sounds like he's very content, so let's not knock it, hey? Oh, yeah, very much so, very much so. He had a really beautiful, peaceful birth at home, and um, I think that has set us in good stead for kind of taking things dead gently. That and the pandemic, actually. I know it's kind of considered crass to talk about uh, pandemic silver linings, but, you know, like Rob didn't go back to work after two weeks, or he did, but at home and so you know we've had everything that we've needed to just kind of take this transition so gently so I'm still feeling very much in the in the kind of uh, how would you put it the birth zone the haze the the blissful early days so I'm feeling good thank you (laughs) no it's so good to hear and I'm not a fan of the phrase build back better you know but at the same time if you know better co-parenting can come out of the way in which we can work and organize our families and our workloads that's got to be a good thing for sure for sure I think there's actually loads of scenarios where build back better is fun not only to say but to aim for (laughs) (laughs) all right you can keep working on me I'm not there yet (laughs) okay build back better pinky maybe if I just say it a lot build back better build back better now I'm gonna stop let's introduce this month's guest (laughs) So this month, we are absolutely delighted to be joined by the wonderful Hannah James, described as a true original by The Guardian. She is both an astounding accordionist, as well as being well known for her classic and contemporary applications of English clog dance. Part of folk supergroup Coven, with thank folk for feminism alumni Grace Petrie. She's also a member of Lady Masery and Kerfuffle, and she's also duetted with Sam Sweeney and been a part of Songs of Separation alongside Kareem Paul, which won the 2017 BBC Folk Award for the Best Album. Today, however, Hannah talks to us about folk dance traditions, various identities, as well as her more recent relocation to Central Europe and the music that that's inspired. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us today. It's such an honour to be talking with somebody who weaves together both music and dance. And Lucy and I were saying just before the start of this call how dance is something that people have been contacting us about and asking us to pick up as part of the podcast. So we're really hoping that this is the start of a conversation today rather than the end of a conversation. Um, And I wondered if you might begin the conversation today by just telling us a little bit about your experience of the dance world and what it means to you. Yeah, of course. Um, It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much for for having me. Um, So, yeah, I I actually started dancing when I was really, really young. Um, I went to dancing school when I was three. 
Um, and then I started to learn um, folk dance from my mum when I was about seven. And then through that, I got into, um, I joined a group in Stockport called the Fosbrooks and I learned to play the accordion. And then I got into folk singing. And really, if it wasn't for dance, I wouldn't be a musician, I think. Um, it was kind of my, all my grounding. And actually a lot of my musical grounding comes from the dance training that I had when I was very young as well. Um, so yeah it's a big it's a big part of who i am and uh and of the the journey that i've been on and um yeah i think my my ex it's it's an interesting one to be um a professional dancer working in well i'm a, i i'm known as being an english clog dancer um which is a, a very 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 small pond <laughs> there's not there's not so many English clog dancers, even in England, a lot of people and a lot of English people don't know what clog dancing is. Um, and it doesn't have, um, there's not such a, a, a kind of standardized training pathway. If you want to become an English clog dancer, it's not like tap dance or even Irish dance, you know, where there's loads of uh, schools and classes everywhere. Um, so it's, I kind of I think because I wanted to do in English clog, but I also wanted to be a kind of a professional performer and dancer, I sort of had to carve my own way through it quite a lot because um, there wasn't really anyone to copy <laughs> uh, or anyone in you know who's still alive at least. Um, that's so cool to hear and, and I think uh, you know as as somebody that has uh, you know played many a, a bill um, in all your different uh, with you in all your different guises over the years mm. one way that I would describe you as a contemporary watching you is that you're always so innovative but you explaining your route into the music and uh, and as you say how there's nobody to follow so actually it's free for you to um, express and interpret as you feel artistically is just really so cool to hear yeah I think it's like it's been a really great thing because it's given me a huge amount of freedom but then sometimes I see other types of percussive dance that have a much more developed uh way of learning or kind of learning pathway and I'm a bit envious because actually I would I would have loved to have had that depth of training at some point as well um so yeah it's got it's it's got its ups and downs but I yeah it's definitely taken me on a very um unusual journey <laughs> <laughs> And I guess within that, Hannah, there's something about, you know, clog dance being one form of dance, but we know there are many different forms of um, traditional dance out there in the folk scene. And some of those have been flagged to us as being potentially problematic based on mm -hmm. gender roles or based on, um, you know, setup and the construction of the dance. What do you make of all of that? What's your experience of those kind of well, I think to be honest, I think that's why, I mean, I came, I came kind of through tap dancing and into clog dancing. And I'd say that clog is a little bit separate from things like Morris and rapper. Um, it's, um, it's more of a solo dance form, um, although you do get people dancing in teams as well. It, it doesn't have the same history of being like a, a group dance. Um, and uh, that does mean that you're, it doesn't have the same sort of uh, gender stereotypes that than, that Morris and Rapper have. 
say. Um, and I think definitely when I, I went to Newcastle um, to study on the folk degree for a while um, when I was 19 and there I started to come across uh, more of the kind of Morris teams and rapper teams and some of them, are, are, you know, they're really great, they're great dancers and I love the music and they, they do stuff really well but there was, there was something about the very prescribed gender roles that I didn't like and I think um, I I sort of moved away from it because of that, actually. Um, and yeah, kind of set about on my own uh, path using it, dancing uh, traditional dance, but um, in my own, I mean, when I did, when I made my solo show Jigdoll, for instance, I deliberately dressed in quite androgynous clothes. Um, and actually clog dancing sort of allows you to do that because it's a solo dance and actually, um, as kind of traditional dancers go, um, it's a solo dance that where the men and the women are basically doing the same steps and the same, like if you compare it to something like um, flamenco or even um, Irish dance, um, if you watch something like river dance, the men and the women do dance quite differently and they wear very different outfits and um, it's very gendered. <laughs> Whereas, um, and it's the same even with flamenco, it's more so because the women really use their bodies very differently, even though they're kind of making the same rhythms with their feet. Um, and I do quite like that clog allows you to sort of dance how you want to. And it's about the, um, it's about the rhythm and the musicality as much as, as anything else. Um, so I think that's why I, yeah, probably in my early twenties sort of moved away from the, the dance team scene a bit more and, and kind of made my own little world where I could do traditional dance how I wanted to. <laughs> um, and there's also, there's a funny separation. I mean, when you go to folk festivals and things, um, most of the dance that you see the traditional dance is not on the stages it's being done out in the you know car parks or on the field or in in the street in the local town or whatever um and i like that it, it has um more of a community feeling in a way because most of the people who are doing it are doing it just because they love it and they go every week and meet the friends and um and dance with them and that's really nice and i know that now since I sort of moved away from the the dance team scene more that I think there has been a lot of progression and there's women's sides and there's mixed uh, gender dance sides and, and stuff like that and people are starting to have these conversations but there's definitely still um, a big section of, of the Morris uh, community that is really trying to hold on to these quite conservative and outdated um ideals i think certainly well uh, yeah and, and as, as you're saying that and i'm thinking about what you were saying about sides being out on the street and that mm -hmm. actually being for many um unsuspecting members of the public their one and only connection to um the richness of folk culture in our country mm -hmm. and it's just got me thinking about you know well if they if they happen to see a side that's very gendered then what kind of advert is it for mm -hmm. um what an inclusive uh community we can be or can aim to be and yeah. uh, and all that and all that kind of stuff and I, I suppose that kind of moves us on on to inclusivity really and 
And obviously anything being very heavily gendered makes it more difficult for a wide range of people to feel comfortable accessing, right? Mm. Um, But, you know, what what do you view is working well out there and where do you think that um, sides and festivals and just us as a community could be improving? I think in general, I I mean, I'm not really talking so much about um, sort of gender inclusivity, but I'm talking just about inclusivity as a whole. I think in in our, the, the, the English folk scene has quite a specific um, demographic. Um, it's, I'd, I don't want to offend anybody, but it's generally kind of people middle-aged or older. There aren't so many younger listeners. They're almost all white and they're mostly, I would say, kind of left-leaning, although actually in the, in some parts of the folk scene, very much including the more traditional dance part of the folk scene, I think you find more right-wing and yeah, conservative views. Um, but I think if we really want to, you know, create inclusivity in the scene, it's not enough to just try to sell what we have now and, and somehow market it to other people in, in other, you know, excluded minorities of any kind. I think if you really want to draw people in and make something more inclusive, you have to, there has to be an interaction with those groups in the process and the the community part and the, yeah, the creative process and the kind of development process of, of the art and of the, the events and, and things. So for instance, I, yeah, there was a, there was a bit of a debate a few weeks ago because um, Oxford, uh, what, what was Oxford Folk Festival, Live to Your Living Room decided to run um, a queer month of, uh, a month of gigs from queer, queer artists. And there was a debate as to, you know, is that necessary? And all these, these arguments came up about like, what has, what of my sexual preference has got to do with the folk songs that I sing? And I just think that's completely, it's looking at it from completely the wrong angle, because actually what, what an event does like that does is it says to any um queer person who might not automatically go to a folk event for fear of not feeling safe or welcome it just it's a big flag to them to say yes you're you're welcome here and you're welcome in this scene um and it doesn't mean that we all have to be we don't even have to sing anything about being queer or any you know it can just be a regular folk gig but we've just We've done a little thing to say like you're welcome here this is a this is a welcoming space so i think that's part of it and yeah collaborating um thinking outside the box a little bit more about who you choose to collaborate with um even thinking about who you choose to play in your band and like the you know um the balance of genders in your band the balance of ethnicities in your band like think think about it and think about if, if there's something you can maybe do because if you actually look a little bit further than the people that you you regularly play with you'll find amazing artists to collaborate with um it's not like you i don't know i think there's this um this strange mentality that you have to you have to in order to be inclusive you have to use people that you wouldn't really want to use just because they take a certain box and i think it's it's nonsense because there's there's such diversity of people out there who have amazing skills and all you have to do is like 
just look a little bit further than you you might have done once <laughs> and you'll and you'll find i don't know expansive opportunities and really great collaboration opportunities um for working with people that felt like quite a ramble but <laughs> it's, no, it's, it's just <laughs> it's not yeah. a ramble at all i think it's something that's come up time and time again actually mm-hmm. on the podcast about right. this kind of analogy right if you can't mm-hmm. just like have a table and open the door and expect people to come and sit around your table that you actually no. have to tell people the door is there and it's open yeah. and they're welcome to walk through it and that's the difference yeah. right it's like yeah. investing some effort from the inside to invite people in mm-hmm. rather than the other way around yeah yeah and I've I've noticed that you know since I was part of Coven um with Lady Masery which was very much a queer act like people have started to come to my gigs and ask me for lessons and things because they feel safe. You know, I've got a couple of um, students at the moment who are uh, trans and they came to me because they felt safe enough to approach me because they'd already seen me working in an environment like that. So it really does, it's it's that direct, you know, if you, if you make it clear that you're a safe haven, then people will, people will come, <laughs> yeah. That's so hugely powerful. And it's also interesting because talking about um, uh, collaborating and it being on artists to look beyond their circle that they normally play with. And that's really interesting because that's that's the flip of what we normally talk about on the podcast. We're often talking about what promoters and organisers can do to ensure that their lineups are more diverse without actually addressing that, mm-hmm. you know, also the artists have the ability to to as you say think outside of the box and diversify and find something incredible and enriching on the other side of it mm. um so yeah just uh, you you did really well with my meandery question and answered it just so beautifully and concisely <laughs> and gave us two really like clear clear <laughs> points to think about for sure and um you know to to go back to to you specifically and your experience of marrying music and and dance mm-hmm. I'm really interested from the perspective of somebody who only has that music string about how it makes you feel when you bring in that physicality and why you choose to mix the two it's really interesting okay um yeah for me it's it's kind of almost impossible to um to make music without thinking about like movement and especially rhythm um I feel like I'm maybe because it's my sort of comfort zone and it's the, the thing that I started off with, but it's really, uh, I think I make my best um, music and song when I'm also allowing myself to move and use my body uh, all the time. Um, and I, I go through periods when I'm not dancing very much. And as soon as I start again, it's like my body's like, where the hell have you been? Like what? And it's like this feeling that comes up, like, you know, thank God we started doing this again. And I, yeah, I think, I think we hold a lot of tension and a lot of memories and a lot of trauma in our bodies as well. So if we if we disconnect ourselves from them, um, I think it we we can easily disconnect from how we really feel about things. And and you know connecting with you know really how you feel about things and your kind of dreaming self as well as your kind of outer self is so important when you're being creative. Um, so for me, it's it's it all just it has to go together. It can't, it can't really be separate. Um, but yeah, I, I, 
then I actually do perform in some bands where I'm, I don't really do very much dancing at all. Um, and uh, I kind of, I love, I love all the bands that I work with, but I actually, I, I really have to have a project where I'm doing a lot of dance as well. Um, and that's kind of why I originally made my solo show Jig Girl, because I really wanted to make a, a show that was really, really centered on, uh, on percussion and movement and, and percussive dance as the sort of starting point for everything. And it's funny, isn't it? Because there's a real split, I think, in the folk community of like some forms of folk music that they demand dance to go along with it, whether that's like mm -hmm. audience participation as part of it and, you know, mm -hmm. kind of Kayleys and things like that, or whether mm -hmm. it's just people getting up and moving to what they're hearing and then other forms of folk where it does really feel like actually have to sit down and pay attention to this and this is not yeah. a a dancey thing and it's interesting how we've got these two different strands of the same you know yeah. elements I guess yeah I think so well I think there's because a lot of the music is um you know most folk tunes are written to dance to apart from slow airs you know um so it, they really go together um and and you know the the rhythm of a lot of the tunes especially Morris tunes it's it's an, it's informed by how people like leap into the air and land again and that kind of heavy heaviness of the rhythm it's really it's really from the movement and the dance um but yeah for sure we also have this incredibly rich um more kind of narrative storytelling social commentary side of our um traditions which yeah i mean it's it, when you're singing about a minor strike or something you might not want to be also yeah, da, 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 like dance, dancing, dancing around. You know, it's it's a serious. We're talking about something serious. Um, uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I think there's there's definitely space for both, but, and I, I need both as well. And actually, um, more recently, um, I think kind of storytelling and songwriting has has started to be more a, a bigger part of of my work. Um, so yeah, my next solo show actually is going to be sort of still using dance and stuff but weaving more storytelling and so maybe yeah maybe i am without realizing trying to bring in more of the tradition <laughs> again that sounds incredible when's that gonna happen when will we see that show um well i'm gonna be working on it um next year i'm gonna actually i'm gonna start by making a podcast where i interview it sounds like i'm just copying you i'm gonna interview seven different um women and it's going to be um, the, the whole the whole show. This I've never I wasn't expecting to talk about this, and I <laughs> this is, I, haven't, I haven't aired this at all yet. So this is a completely new uh, announcement. But yeah, I'm um, I, I'm making a show uh, based on this incredible lake um, that um, it's it's in a place called Sedknitsa, which is um, close to where I live now in Slovenia. Um, and it's it's this magic lake. It's in at some times of the year. It's uh it's the biggest lake in the country, and then at other times it disappears down underground because there's all these um kind of caves and pores under the ground, and it, it and it then turns into this kind of really beautiful expanse of green flatland with a small river running through the middle. And I became incredibly attached to this place. And actually, when I uh, my friend took me to this bridge that goes over the lake at one point, and I sat there on it, and that was when I knew that I wanted to live here. I and I've de developed this very deep connection with this place. Um, but yeah, so the the lake um, has it changes all the time, and it doesn't change. Uh, it doesn't change like the the same 
time of year every year it kind of does its own thing so it kind of rises and falls as it feels like it um there's there's a history of, of witches and witch burning in the area as well and there's a lot of kind of very um magic seeming women around and a lot of women who are really really connected with nature still and do loads of foraging and only drink the water that comes from the local springs and stuff it's really like a fairy tale place um and uh so then i i really started to connect this um the lake and this place i really started to think of this lake as a female entity because she just kind of rises and falls and and fills and empties um kind of in, in her own rhythm she doesn't really care she doesn't wait for the right time of year um and uh yeah the, the more i thought about it the more it kind of fit and then um i asked my friend katia who um, has lived there all her life and has a really amazing connection with this place um if there was any folklore about the lake and she said well the only thing um there is is this there's this kind of uh, man that lives in the bottom of the lake and the, the word for lake is Yezero in in Slovenian and he's called Yezerko um and I was just like that makes no sense at all like to me the lake is is this female entity so I uh, I call the lake Yezerka and I've written lots of poems and songs about it already and and people people, people here seem to really approve of that they they kind of they kind of go along with it. Um, so anyway, I then started to think uh, the lake is actually fed by this river that's known as the River of Seven Names um, because it appears in one place and it has one name and then it disappears underground again and then it disappears somewhere else and it has another name and it does this seven times. Um, and I, I started to think, what would it be like? Um, how much less restrictive would life be if we were all allowed to have seven names and seven different identities and seven different ways of expressing ourselves? And um, yeah, the more the more I thought about it, um, yeah. So so there's my show is going to be all about a lot of the the stuff about the lake and the beauty of it and what actually happens, you know, scientifically around the area. It's really fascinating, but also about journeying and, and deep connection with uh, places in nature. And then community and self and identity. So that's the, all the themes in the show are going to be about that. And um, so the first, but the first part of it is because we're still kind of in this strange lockdown. Are we locked down? Are we not? Thing. I'm not going to try and organise a tour next year because I, I just can't. I can't. Re I can't reorganise any more tours. So I'm going to make. Um, I'm going to do a podcast where I. I've, I've met along the way and through lots of other bits of studying and things in the past couple of years, I've met so many incredible people with amazing stories and amazing women um, with just different senses of identity and self. And so I'm going to interview seven different women um, about these ideas and uh, kind of respond creatively with, to each of these conversations and then sort of see what happens by the end of it and make show that will tour the following year yeah that was a very long answer to the question sorry about that <laughs> i think we're both like just in silence listening to you because it's just all inspiring like both oh, I'm gonna play now and go and see the oh, lake honestly the you're welcome but, oh. you know. And the, the most amazing thing is that it, in the winter, when it's high, it freezes over and you can actually go ice skating and you can and it freezes. It comes up around the trees and stuff. So you can go ice skating kind of through the, the forest. It's it's insane. But then because the water, the level of the water drops really quickly because there's so many big holes under the ground. 
um, you get this layer of ice that ends up kind of a little bit suspended as the water starts to sink down. And then it starts making these incredible noises. It, it starts singing um, and crack, cracking, and it makes these kind of pew, 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 noises. And it, it was doing it for nine days this year. Um, and my friend took loads of amazing recordings of it. So I think, but yeah, those, those things will be in the show as well. Yeah. <laughs> That's when we thought it couldn't get any better. Until sometime in the winter. And then also yeah. going, has anybody been pulled down a big hole when they've skated on it at the wrong time? Like just so many questions well, going on in my mind yeah. now. I think the odd person has skated too far into the middle and then got into serious trouble. So you really have to, um, yeah, respect it. That's another reason why I feel like it's a good metaphor for this powerful woman. You know, I wrote in one of the in one of the um, pieces I wrote about it. I wrote, "Admire her surface, fear her depths," because that is kind of yeah the 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 I don't know attitude that people seem to have. <laughs> oh and that I think like ties into the next thing we wanted to ask you about Hannah which is um thinking very much about the fact that you've collaborated with so many different artists from so many different parts of the world and individuals with different traditions do you have a highlight moment from that work um there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot um I just the reason why I've collaborated with so many different people is that I love that moment where you just find something new, you know, like whenever you collaborate with a new person, it's like this little world between the two of you, like emerges. And there's always like a moment when just something happens, like you come up with an idea at the same time, or you, you find just something small and interesting that like that just, you know, immediately excites you both or you know or all of you depending it might be a, a bigger group of people but I can't really I don't think I can really pinpoint one because it's that thing that I'm always like looking for and that's why I keep collaborating with different people because it's so beautiful to find that and um, find it in different places and with people that speak different languages and um, people with different experiences and people that you might not agree with about everything and you know it's I think it's I mean, that's why music and creativity is so important anyway, isn't it? Because they they allow us to connect and, and they lift us in a way that other types of dialogue don't. Certainly. And I think from the perspective of um, people listening to this who are regulars on the English British festival scene, I think often your your projects and things that you've bought have been, you know, some of the the few times people have been able to experience these traditions from other places. So as much as I'm hearing that it absolutely is about, you know, creation and connection and immense respect for the art and work of these people, I think, you know, it's also kudos to you for allowing us the listeners to share mm. in that space that you're creating and and bringing you know bringing other projects over and uh, and this late project oh my goodness it does as Pinky <laughs> said I'm just I'm, I'm just here in complete awe and we're very excited about your <laughs> podcast that sounds absolutely tremendous oh, more podcasts you. please from powerful yeah. women everywhere <laughs> that's what we need <laughs> yeah so, no, but I, I think it's important as well yeah like a few years ago I 
for a couple of years running, I put together some dance pieces for Shrewsbury Folk Festival, which were kind of collaborative dance pieces, working with um, yeah d different types of dance from different parts of the world, but that were all based in the in the Midlands. And that was, I think, yeah, that maybe one of my kind of proudest um, moments. There's nothing I wasn't on stage at the time, but like um, there's there is an incredible um, Indian. Katak dancer um, from Birmingham called Sonia Sabri. And I actually met her because I did a collaboration in, in India with her nephew and then he told me about her. So I had to go to India to find out that there was an amazing Katak dancer in Birmingham. Um, <laughs> but um, I, yeah, the first year that we put this show together, it was basically a, a montage of amazing dance that was, you know, fr from this, from the Midlands um, of England. And we, we did some collaborative bits and then also just gave everyone you know a good bit of airtime to just do their thing in front of the audience and and when I think Sonia is probably one of the most I can't think of a more incredible dancer like she has she has complete control yet complete freedom over every cell in her body when she's dancing from her eyes to like the tips of her toes and um just to give to, to bring what she does to to the to the audience at Shrewsbury Festival, who are mostly used to seeing kind of English folk, and to just to just feel the energy and the the like, it was instant. They were instantly in awe of her, and they instantly got it. It didn't need any explanation. We didn't need to be like you know a big. We didn't need to do a half hour lecture on where Catholic dancing comes from, what it, what it is. No, it was just like the art completely spoke for itself, and her her um, incredible mastery of the art spoke for itself and it was just 10 minutes of like joyous skillful oh yeah and it was amazing so i think yeah that was one of my favorite moments just putting putting somebody in front of an audience that were not expecting to see it and watch them be lifted in the way that they were yeah that does sound like a really special moment now because we don't <laughs> have the joy of visual here katak dancing um, correct me if I'm wrong, but that is a very narrative style of dancing, right? Yeah. So actually, it's it's interesting because we were just talking about um, you know bringing together the storytelling narrative elements and mm. the movement and the dance. And actually, Sonia, um, I worked with her a little bit when I was creating Jigdob. She was one of my mentors um, because I'm very very interested in the way. Um, so I was talking a bit earlier about how like the, the way that clog dancing is not is taught is not so developed. Um, but the but Katak uh, dance, I mean, it's this really, really rich, very, very old um, kind of classical dance form. So people are incredibly well trained. But the thing that I was interested in the most was that um, the the dancer um, it's, it has a lot of footwork. So it's a percussive. It's it's a, a narrative style of dance, but it also is it's rhythmic and percussive. It, it's everything. It's got everything. Um, and so the dancers learn um, the the kind of the different um, strikes and the different movements that you do with your feet, all um, uh, sort of synchronize with the strikes that the tabla player um learns with their hands so each each tabla strike or sound has a corresponding like foot movement and the those you know the strike and the foot movement uh also have like a vocable that goes with them so the, the tabla can the tabla player can say it's going to be da din din da or like how, however you'd say it and the the the, the 
dancer will immediately know what that means for their feet. So it's like, it's, it's almost a boundaryless communication between the dancer and the musician. Um, so that was the part of it that completely um, drew me in in the first place and that I wanted to learn more about. Um, but then, yeah, then it has this whole other element of storytelling and like showing all the emotion on the face and at the same time just being so kind of in control and yeah it's amazing yeah. <laughs> so just check her out on the, on youtube she's got loads of videos and stuff. <laughs> we'll make sure to post a, a link during the the yeah. month that your podcast is live because i want to watch her dance certainly yeah. i'm sure there's I'm... actually there's still a link uh on you can still watch that show uh it's oh, the, awesome. from shrewsbury it's still on on youtube i maybe send you a link afterwards and you can yeah please do please do we'd love to share that yeah Yeah. awesome awesome (laughs) Um, cool so talking about Shrewsbury it's a real um you know home from home festival for so many artists especially artists from the Midlands like you know you are originally and um and I wanted to talk to you really about um I suppose your your musician self um and your uh, I suppose the two acts perhaps that were that are most you're most known for being part of in this circle it, Lady Masery and Kerfuffle in the very early days of musicianship mm-hmm. and we were just interested in you know Lady Masery three women and Kerfuffle you're the only woman playing with yeah. you know other me- with men and I'm just kind of you know we're just wondering do you have any reflections these years later on whether you were perceived differently by audiences or promoters or, you know, if there's just anything in that conversation, really. I think there's loads in that conversation. Okay, let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, so I was part of this band called Kerfuffle from when I was about 13 through to kind of early, my early 20s. Um, And yeah, I was the only girl uh, in the band. I was also, uh, two of the guys came from, you know, quite a, a privileged um, educational background, let's say. And I went to a, a scuzzy community school in Chesterfield. So there was quite a lot of differences between us. Um, but um, like, yeah, I think when I first joined that group, for me, it was it was really, really, really important to be part of a a peer group that really valued me for what I did. Um, it was the first time I'd experienced that, you know, going to this, um, you know, community school on a council estate in Chesterfield, where, you know, it was basically really uncool to be good at anything or interested in anything. And, you know, you were only as good as the amount of boys you'd snog, basically, that was, you know, that was the level. And then I found this you know, group of um, dorky teenage boys um, from from Derby and and Barnsley. And, um, you know, they completely valued me for like all the all the good stuff, you know, the things that I could do and the things I was interested in. And, you know, so I think in that way, it was it was I was really lucky to find that. Um, and I, I found it in um, in the in the Fosbrooks as well, um, but because I was kind of I joined that as a sort of honorary member, whereas Kerfuffle was kind of my thing. So, 
yeah, it was, it was more important. Um, but then I do look back and I, I mean, I was the, the singer, you know, and I was kind of, I felt more, more uh, pressure to look pretty on stage and all those kind of things, um, which, yeah, I guess I didn't really think of at the time, but like, I've, I've, I've evolved into quite a different person and my image has evolved quite a lot since then, I'd say. Um, and I think also, yeah, like then later, um, you know, I was in a duo with Sam as well. And I think there is, there's this perception, even when people are listening to like two musicians bouncing off each other and playing, I think they'll still, they'll still have sadly, like a perception that like the, the man is kind of driving the music somehow. Um, I really feel that. And um, so, yeah, I, I think, I, and I, I don't think it's even caused by the musicians themselves. I think it's a, it's a real perception thing. And we see it in, you know, the fact that there's barely been any female nominees for, you know, Musician of the Year at the Folk Awards. And when that, you know, when there has, it's been a, it's been a huge deal, you know, um, for years, you know, most of the years it's been four men has have been um, nominated for that. So it's really in, and, and of course, there are so many amazing female musicians that could have been nominated on those years and weren't. And I, and I think that's just a lot down to how we perceive what we're listening to and what we're seeing. Um, so I think that was always there. Um, and yeah, so then it was, it was quite a, a difference kind of moving into Lady Masery and starting to work with women. And then from there, actually, I had a few years where really I was only working with women for quite a long time because we, we did um, Songs of Separation. That was an all-female project. Then we did Coven. Um, so I suddenly went from being surrounded by guys to working almost completely with women. Um, and yeah, I mean, it is, it is different because as soon as it's three women, it's a, it's a female band. It's not a band. <laughs> I'm sure that's been said before, but it's, it, that is just what happens. And, you know, though, I think it was actually Lucy, I think we, we were doing a gig in the same place as you in, in, um, Swaddling Coat years ago. Um, and we arrived. Kilns. Yeah, yeah, Kilns. yeah. That was right. That was <laughs> We'd been on tour for like a couple of weeks, and we arrived at the um, at the place. And we, I think I think we were having to. We needed to like do a little bit of our own setting up or something. And anyway, we we arrived at the place, and we um, the guy came to meet us at the door, and we said, "Oh yeah, where do we load in? We've got all the gear." And and he just kept saying oh but you need the dressing room don't you like, no we need to go and load the gear for the sound check and he said yeah but you can get dressed in here and we were like no but we need to do the sound check first and it just just these little things we, we've laughed about that for ages because it's yeah just just these very small things and yeah in themselves they're not they're kind of harmless but also it's it's just yeah it, it's it's just quite showing of, of where people are and how they perceive a band of women rather than a band of men <laughs> somehow yeah yeah and what would be most important to you right <laughs> looking good or <laughs> sounding good in yeah, that scenario being, being heard at all yeah <laughs> yeah yeah being heard at all helps <laughs> 
It's like classic, um, isn't it? Those classic, what we probably now call microaggressions, but you know, those yeah. ways in which yeah. as women, we understand how the world is coded and we understand when, you know, somebody does something like that and keeps saying, oh, you know, the dressing room is this way, what that means to us. Whereas mm. for the individual saying it, it's like, yeah. where's the issue here? I don't, I don't even see the issue because I don't have to walk the world in those footsteps and those mm. shoes and that you know then starts to play out as really problematic I guess because it's recreated for generation after generation after generation um yes so and you mentioned songs for uh, songs of separation and coven both of which were just tremendous projects that completely um you know took the folk world by storm when they happened and uh we've been uh you know really lucky to talk to some of those people already on the podcast that you collaborated mm-hmm. with and I think um I, I think it's really uh interesting what you say about you know uh, intentionally or not you just ended up working with with women and 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 I suppose it's just I don't know from the outside I'm kind of feel like I'm hearing that it was sort of like a step into power that you didn't even know you were taking it was just you know, something that then informed your development as an artist and a human, as every experience we have does, and um, and has led you to this really, really cool place you're at. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely, I think just the, the different, the breadth of um, projects that I've been able to work in has, I mean, it's just fed, uh, it's just fed me creatively and, you know, I've had a chance to work with people, you know, great songwriters, great musicians, great percussionists, you know, and it, it all kind of feeds into to what you do. Um, and yeah, I think just those two projects, there's just, there was just so much kind of solidarity, actually. And, and, you know, when you're working with other women, they just, they also understand like all those kind of microaggressions and all that stuff they they already get it so i think there's a level of kind of humor and a mockery of all that 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 emerges when you're in a group of women that um it's kind of very playful and uh and 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 there's a lot of joy in it even though you're mocking something that you know shouldn't happen and makes you really angry um so I think maybe I started to take that for granted. And then, you know, when I then did start to work in bands that had guys in again, you know, just that that realization, that, oh no, you don't quite have that same understanding of this joke that I just made about what that man just said, than like my band, than Lady Masery would, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's subtle, but it's, it's there. <laughs> it is very much there. It's very true, <laughs> very much there. Um, <laughs> And uh, and so before we bring this interview to a close, an interesting question that's been going through my mind, and I've been talking to different musicians about as we um, come back from this time of enforced reflection that the pandemic Mm -hmm. has left us with, do you think going forward the experience of, uh, you know, being, being off the road and away from creating um in a way that you just wouldn't have been otherwise do you think it, it's going to change you or change what you hope the audience get from a show of yours is there are you taking it forward any lessons loads loads I mean for me like 
it sounds like an awful thing to say, but like the, the pandemic and the, the forced stop came at a really good time for me. And it's a horrible thing to say because obviously so many people have had bad experience, awful experiences. And, but I think I, I've heard that from a few fellow artists as well. Just, we get into this mode of feeling like we're always chasing the next thing. And, you know, you turn yourself into a product and you constantly sell that product. And, um, it's really, really hard to turn things down and it's really hard to take enough time for yourself. So actually having to do that and then realizing that the world hasn't completely stopped for, for me was was amazing. And I actually, well, I got stuck in Slovenia in, in the first lockdown and that's how I ended up staying here. So it had a profound effect on my, uh, on my life. Um, but also, so through that, I, I started to do quite a lot of online teaching. Um, and um really 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 enjoyed doing that really enjoyed um making these connections with people that i see every single week and kind of helping people find like helping people to access music and creativity in their lives like most of the people i teach are, are you know kind of adults who just want to have more music in their lives and i think that's a really 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 important thing it's not always about being professional or wanting to perform it's just about like being able to have creativity and and to use your voice and um yeah i've also um te i teach quite a few um kind of women who are in their 50s and 60s who at some point in their life were told they shouldn't sing or they shouldn't use their voice and i think that's quite a common thing especially i've noticed in women especially women who are physically bigger or tall spend a lot of their lives trying to be smaller um, and actually, um, so a lot of my singing lessons are about just giving people permission to, to make noise and fill the space around them with sound and, and, and access that and, and find the joy in like making sound and, and, you know, enjoying the noise that their body makes, um, cause it's, it's so vital. Um, so that's been a total privilege and I, and, and through that, I actually decided that, um, I wanted to get better, uh, know more about voice. So I've been on a couple of courses um, about vocal health and the, the kind of physiology of voice um, and stuff. And I was I also did a, a course this year in a, a thing called process work, which is a kind of um, a kind of facilitation for kind of group conflict, but also um, a, a kind of psych can be a kind of psychotherapy, which um, I benefit from a lot a few years ago. Um, and that was for me, I, I don't want to do the full diploma or anything, but for me, it, this process work, it's very much about helping people to unfold their process. And it really, it's really an amazing thing to do in a creative setting. So, um, yeah, I, I've, I've found a lot of ways to actually, yeah, to unlock different ways of, of having creativity in your life. And, and actually for me, like, I love I love the sharing part of a concert and that's like the thing that I miss now is bringing bringing the create the creations and sharing them with people and seeing what resonates like that's that's what I like about performing I think that's been a big learning from this period of being off because I don't know for me it's not about being in front of a huge audience kind of screaming and going crazy but it's really about the this like finding finding things that you've like found in yourself and presenting them and then it, it resonates with somebody even if it doesn't resonate in quite the same way but it like it touches something in them and um so I think yeah there, there's been a lot of um 
creative and self-development in this time, I think. And it's all stuff that I definitely want to bring. And I think the, the Lake show and the next work will be, will be richer for this um, enforced stopping. Yeah. <laughs> And I think that's so important, isn't it? You know, I completely hear what you say, Hannah, about, you know, the pandemic has been difficult for, for I think, everybody, you know, and there's a lot of collective trauma and, you know, yeah. processing still to understand about it. But actually, I think lots of people have started to connect in and tap into creativity in different forms. And with the absence of live gigs and that, you know, face-to-face -face human connection, that thinking about, well, how do we express ourselves in different ways has become really important for people you know probably why this podcast got yeah. launched right because Lucy and I needed a new creative outlet and a new way yeah. to express some of the things we were thinking or musing about and I think it's important to say as well that you know some people are getting really bored of zoom now and being on zoom all the time but it's also opened up loads of possibilities that that weren't there before and for people you know I know people who've come to online gigs who can't go out of the house so they you know it's made creativity and, and music for some people it's made it a lot more accessible than it ever would have been and even the courses that I've been on this year they're all courses that under normal circumstances would have been run in person and then probably I wouldn't have been able to do them because you know you always have a tour book two years ahead so or a year and a half and and people don't generally um look like they don't advertise courses that far ahead so you always miss them um so actually to be able to, to do a lot of learning online has yeah it's made it accessible going back to that thing of accessibility um i think we need to keep part of this um the online world of music now because for some people it's the only way they can access it yeah that's so important so true so true oh, that feels like just such a, a a lovely and easy thing for us to take away when there's been so many takeaways from this amazing <laughs> conversation Hannah thank you so much for joining us from Slovenia today and sharing with us you know your your experiences and your insights it's been really great to talk to you thank you thank you so much <laughs> What a total babe human. Really hope that you enjoyed listening to Hannah. And can we can we just like arrange a group outing to that lake? Who oh, wants... I absolutely think we should. I'm there. I'm at the front seat on that bus. I'll drive. <laughs> the thank boat for feminism bus. We'll, we'll, we'll arrange something. We've got to go. I mean, it just sounds completely incredible. And I can absolutely see why it would inspire so much creativity so we look forward wholeheartedly to what's coming next for Hannah James um, but if you can't wait for that project you can get excited because Lady Maisery are heading out on tour this winter uh, the tour starts on the 26th of November in none other than the brilliant Saltaire at the live room and it heads right through to the end of December uh, at the 23rd in fact just just before Christmas Eve um, in at St George's in York which is another beautiful venue so please make sure that you go out and uh, check them out and if you're not feeling ready yet to go out and enjoy live music or they're not coming anywhere near you then rest assured there is also an online show planned so you can find out more by heading to ladymasery.com 
don't forget to follow us on all of our social media platforms, particularly if you want to be kept abreast of our next Friday Feminist Fix. Uh, in the meantime, drop us all of your ideas for future podcasts. This podcast would be nothing without you, our listeners. And we want to make sure that we are making content that is interesting and diverse. So please do send your suggestions our direction. Until next time, take good care. Bye.